you have a Bible, I would love for you to open to Psalm 119, the very last stanza, verse 169 to 176. This is our final week, 22 out of 22 in Psalm 119. Uh, Last week, I gave you a pastoral challenge, a pastoral encouragement to be thinking about what your Bible reading plan would be for the new year. This week, I want to give you one pastoral challenge, pastoral encouragement. I want you, sometime over the next week, maybe today, this afternoon, to take 10, 15 minutes and to read Psalm 119 in its entirety in one setting. It won't take you too long to do it. Uh, It's a long chapter, and my hunch is that as you read it, your mind might wander because it's really long, 176 verses, 10, 15 minutes straight. So my challenge to you, my encouragement to you would be as you read it, read it out loud. You can close the door, you can go in your room, you can be alone in the home, whatever, but read it out loud. Take 10, 15 minutes to think through the entirety of Psalm 119, what we have been studying for the last couple of months. So by now, most of you, I think, have been with us Uh, Just basic review before we come to this final stanza. Psalm 119 is a poem. It's a long acrostic poem. It's built on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And this morning, we come to the very last stanza. And this last stanza is built on the final letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is the letter Tav. In your uh, Bible translation, there's probably a heading, and it says T-A-W, but the way that you pronounce it in Hebrew would be Tav, and so if you're looking at the Hebrew Scriptures, you see the first letter on the right moving towards the left. In each of these eight lines of poetry is a Tav, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. All total, there are 176 verses in Psalm 119. Those 176 verses are broken into 22 stanzas of eight verses each, and one of the things we've noticed week in and week out, is that almost every last verse, just a few exceptions, almost every verse in Psalm 119 makes reference to the Bible. The subject, the theme, the topic of the whole chapter, this longest chapter in the Bible, is the Bible itself. And all these different terms are used mostly for variation. It's the psalmist way of saying to you over and over and over and over again, I have something important to say to you. I have something important that I want you to understand. And it's something that you need to know about God's word. His special revelation to his people. His written word, what we would call the scriptures or the Holy Bible. Now, one last thought before we come to the big idea and read this stanza. This last stanza, as I studied it this last week, it reminds me of the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes. Because I don't know if you've ever read the book of Job, but it really doesn't make sense in its entirety until you get all the way to the end. You have to go all the way to the end of Job and then circle back to the beginning to process the entirety of Job. If you were with us on Wednesday nights when we studied Ecclesiastes, you may remember that when we went through Ecclesiastes as a church, the very first verse we looked at in Ecclesiastes was the very last verse of the book. You have to start at the end to make sense of the beginning. That's the only way those books work. And in a very real sense, I think this 
Psalm 119, this longest chapter in the Bible, functions the same way. I think the only way you can make sense of the entirety of this chapter is if you understand the very last verse of Psalm 119. So that brings us to the big idea. It's based on verse 176. The Word of God reveals our need for a Savior. The Word of God reveals our need for a Savior. If you have your copy of the Scriptures, you can take it. And we're just going to read this last stanza. And then we're going to pray and ask God to do what only God can do in our lives. So, Psalm 119, beginning in verse 169. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Father, this morning we stop as your people. We're thankful for your law. Thankful for your testimonies. Thankful for your ways and your precepts and your statutes. Thankful for your commandments and your rules. Thankful for your word. Thankful for your promise. Lord, as we come to this final stanza of Psalm 119, we are mostly thankful for our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. We pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of this passage through the work of your Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Some 2,000 years ago, there was an uneducated, itinerant Jewish rabbi who lived in what we call the Middle East, and he told lots of stories. I just want to read you one of his stories. It goes like this, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So that's Luke 18. The rabbi was Jesus of Nazareth. And that story has resonated with people down through the years because of the contrast it paints and how people approach the Lord in worship. Now, we're 21st century Americans, and I have a feeling that as we have worked our way through Psalm 119, There have been times in Psalm 119 where we have come across verses where in the back of your mind, even if you didn't make the exact connection, you thought to yourself, well, that sounds a little bit self-righteous to me. 
That kind of sounds like the Pharisee in Jesus' story who went to worship and beat his breast, not in humility, but sort of chest-thumping about all the great things that he had done for the Lord. Let me just give you a few examples of the kinds of verses that I'm talking about. Psalm 119, verse 10, the psalmist says, With my whole heart I seek you. Verse 20, he says, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. We probably read that verse and you thought, you know, sometimes I'm longing for roses. Sometimes I'm longing for my favorite team to win a big game. Man, he sounds really holy, really spiritual, really sure of himself. He says in verse 30, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. It's possible that you read those kinds of verses throughout Psalm 119 and you come away thinking, he sounds very confident in his spirituality, maybe a little bit too confident. But if you've paid attention as we've gone through Psalm 119, at the very same time, we have heard the psalmist appeal to God, asking God to be gracious to him and merciful to him. And he has appealed over and over again to God's steadfast love, his faithful love, his covenant love. And he's asked God to help him. He's asked God, God, would you help me understand your word and would you please help me obey your word? He's acknowledged his dependence on the Lord. And when we come to this final verse, we find something unique in all of Psalm 119, a direct confession of sin. And the psalmist ends with this. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. There's an Old Testament scholar named Derek Kidner. And he offers this helpful comment. He says the psalmist would have taken his stance not with the self-congratulating Pharisee of the parable, but with the publican who stood afar off but went home justified. This morning I want to do two things as we wrap up this series and as we look at this stanza. The first thing I want to do is look back because we've come a long way and we've come to the end and I want us to look back on the entirety of Psalm 119 because now that we've spent 22 weeks we can look back with perspective that we didn't quite have in the earlier parts of this series. So we're going to look back on the entirety of the psalm. We also want to make sense of this final stanza, the Tav stanza uh, that ends Psalm 119. So what you see on your outline is concluding thoughts on Psalm 119 and the Tav stanza. We'll start with this. Number one, I just want to acknowledge that there is a remarkable amount of repetition in Psalm 119. There is an awful lot of repetition. One of the things you may have noticed as we've read these stanzas each week is that each stanza not only has eight verses... But each verse has two parts. That's the, the poetic structure that the psalmist uses in this stanza. Eight verses per stanza, two parts for each verse or each line of poetry. That means if you take the 176 verses, you can actually double that for 352 individual statements. There's a lot of repetition. For example, when you just look at this Tav stanza, and you say there's eight verses, two statements a verse, so there's 16 statements in this final stanza. By my reckoning, 15 of the 16 we have already seen before in Psalm 119. 
94% of what we just read in this top stanza is repeat from other things that we've already talked about at some point in our walk through Psalm 119. There is one verse that is unique, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute, but I don't want to talk about it to the exclusion of the repetition because in the Bible, repetition is important. It's really important. Can I just give you a few examples of where repetition is important? This is not an exhaustive list, just an illustrative list. Number one, the Bible speaks about God as being holy, but it doesn't just say that he's holy. It says twice, once in Isaiah and once in Revelation, that he is holy, holy, holy. And the repetition matters. This is the only attribute of God raised to that degree. Somebody asked me recently, just a few weeks ago, as they were reading through the book of Leviticus, why do we need all of this book? All of these rules about sacrifices and sin offerings and guilt offerings and all the rest. Why couldn't Moses just say, look, you're rotten people and you're going to need to offer sacrifices? And just shorten the whole thing. Why do we need the repetition? Well, the repetition tells you something. The thoroughness of Leviticus leaves you recognizing not only that God is holy, 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 but that you are not, not, not. And that you need a sacrifice to die in your place. What about Job's friends? We're about to launch into a study of the book of Job on Wednesday nights. Why could the author of Job not simply have said, Job's friends showed up and after a week they started yapping and they wouldn't be quiet and they didn't say anything valuable at all? Why do we have to keep reading through it over and over and over again? Bildad speaks and Zophar speaks and then they go around and around. Three times they go around. Why do we need that? The repetition tells you something about the folly that's wrapped up in their discussion. What about the book of Acts? Just one more example. In the book of Acts, Luke tells the story of the early church. The book of Acts is about the length of an ancient scroll. So he filled up the scroll just about as much as he could fill it up. And in that space, Luke decided to tell three different stories three times. Why do you need to know about Saul's conversion? Not once, not twice, but three times. Well, it's kind of important. It's really important. Why do you need to know the story about Cornelius, the Gentile, coming to faith in Jesus? Not just once, not just twice it's told, but three times. It's really important. And Luke's trying to show you how important it is. Why do you need to hear the story of the Jerusalem council? Not just in Acts 15, but then repeated two more times in the book. It's because it's central to what the book of Acts is trying to teach you. Repetition is important. Don't let your mind be numb to the repetition in Psalm 119. It's no coincidence that this is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's no coincidence that almost every verse makes some reference to the Word of God. It's because God, the Spirit, inspiring the psalmist to write it, wants to drill this into your head so that you understand how important it is to have a right view and a right understanding of the Word of God. So, number one, lots of repetition. Number two, still looking back on the entirety. There is a tension that runs all the way through Psalm 119, and here's the tension. We are responsible before God 
and we're dependent on God. You see both of these ideas back and forth play out in Psalm 119. We are responsible before God. We are responsible for how we receive His Word and how we respond to His Word. God will hold every person responsible for how they respond to the revelation that they've received from Him, either in Scripture or in creation. All will be held responsible. We're responsible. We're also completely dependent on God for how we respond to His Word and understand His Word and obey His Word and implement it in our lives. And that's why when you read Psalm 119, there's this constant back and forth and this constant tension between the psalmist saying things like, I am wholeheartedly committing myself to your Word. And then he turns around and what does he say? God, would you please help me? God, I need you. I need you to teach me, I need you to guide me, I need you to uphold me, I need you to help me understand these things. He understands that he's responsible and dependent. We're not going to go into this at great depth. I just want you to understand, there is a world of theological debate that boils down to people overemphasizing one of these two truths. There are some people who are prone to emphasize our responsibility before God to such a great degree that they make it sound like it's just all up to us. We can do it on our own or we can't, but it's all on us because they're emphasizing too heavily our responsibility. Other people emphasize how dependent we are on the Lord and they neglect the truth that we are actually responsible before God for how we respond to his word and obey his word and keep his word and the psalmist is balanced in these two truths he understands that he's responsible before God for how he handles the word of God and he knows he is completely dependent on God for receiving the word for understanding it for obeying it for keeping it, for living it. I saw a post on social media this last week. I just thought I would share it with you as we think about this. The question is, what is the hardest for you to say to other people? Number one, maybe the hardest thing for you to say to somebody is, I love you. Number two, I'm not even going to try to say it. Let's just all say it on the count of three. You ready? One, two, three. Yeah, maybe that's the hardest thing for you to say. I don't know. Maybe it's number three. You really don't like saying, I was wrong. Or maybe it's number four. You don't like saying that your conspiracy theory friend was right. Or maybe you're like a lot of Americans. Self-sufficient, self-reliant, independent pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, Americans, and the one thing that you have a hard time saying is, I need help. How many times have you offered somebody who was sick or lost a loved one, how many times have you said to someone in that situation, hey, let me know if you need anything? And how many times have they let you know? We don't like saying that. In any context, sinful human beings don't like saying it in a spiritual context. We'd like to think that we're sufficient in matters of faith and obedience and walking with the Lord, worship, 
The reality is we're dependent. Completely dependent on God and His mercy and His grace. Are we responsible before Him? Absolutely. But we are completely dependent on God for help. Which is why in this Tav stanza, the psalmist repeatedly, repeatedly asks for help. And that brings us to this Tav stanza. I want you to see that the final stanza of Psalm 119 is filled with petitions. Petitions. We're not going to make a big deal about this, but I just want you to see it. Because we're reading in English, and my hunch is none of us are fluent in Hebrew. In English, you read these verses and you kind of try to make sense of them. You don't see that in the original language, remember that picture I showed you with all those tavs lined up on the right side? Those tavs in Hebrew function as a prefix in each line. And the way those tavs function at the beginning of each of those words in the tav stanza is that they turn everything in that line into a request. Doesn't always come out in our English translations. Your translators are not trying to deceive you. Translating poetry is really hard from any one language to any other language. But what you need to understand is that grammatically in the original language, every one of these eight lines is a petition. It's a request. And the psalmist is asking for help. Here's how I would just summarize the point that I'm trying to make to you here. I'll show you two verses. John chapter 15 verse 5 Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. Of spiritual significance. Nothing. Not small things. Not a few things. No things. And yet Paul said, verse we all know, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Forget all the silly applications of Philippians 4.13 and just understand what Paul is saying. On our own, we can do nothing. Nothing. In Christ, we have help. We have help. And the psalmist understands this, this tension. He knows he's responsible, but he also knows he's dependent on God. So as he comes to the end of this long poem, over and over and over again, eight times, he's essentially asking for help. Help me. Help me. Help me. I need help. A person can have no relationship with Almighty God until you are willing to stand before Him and say, I can't do it and I need help. Look at the last petition, verse 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. And here's the petition. Seek your servant. I've gone astray like a lost sheep and I need you to seek me out. Here's what I want you to remember as we come to the end here. God's law is not intended to save God's people. I'm not opposed to the Ten Commandments displays we have around town. I'm not opposed to teaching God's law, His moral law to people. I think you can't understand what it really means to live in the West unless you understand the foundation of how the Judeo-Christian law has functioned in our society. But listen, listen, because Americans miss this all the time. God's law was never, never intended to save God's people. Never. 
Why did God give his people his law? I'm going to give you these quickly, and we'll move through this and, and move towards a conclusion. Number one, God gave his law to his people to reveal God's character. To reveal his character. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. The verse I gave you here is Exodus 20. Before God launches into a whole bunch of laws in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, the first thing he says is, I am Yahweh, your God. God wants his people to know who he is. It's one reason he gave them his law. Number two, God's law reveals our sin. Romans 7, 7, Paul says, I wouldn't have even known what it was to covet unless I had read the Ten Commandments. But once I read that Tenth Commandment, I looked at my own life and I said, oh, I'm guilty of that. I've done that. It revealed his sin. It was like looking in a spiritual mirror where he saw the standard of God and his holiness and his character and he realized, I don't live up to that. I've fallen short. It reveals God's character. It reveals our sin. Number three, God's law guarded God's people until the coming of the Messiah. I'll leave you to trace this out in Galatians 3 and 4. But Paul just says, look, we become sons of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And until Jesus came, God had given his people his law to serve as a guardian, to prepare them and to lead them to the truth of the Messiah who was to come. Number four, the law tells us how life works best. We've sang about that this morning. I gave you Genesis 1 and 2. All I'm pointing to in that reference is the fact that God created us and God knows how life works best and that's reflected in His law. The Creator knows how life works best. The creature does not know what is best in every situation and circumstance. But the Creator does know, and God's law reveals this to us. Look, Tremper Longman, Old Testament scholar, says it like this, Neither in the Old nor the New Testament is the law the key to establishing a relationship with God, for that is an act of God's grace in our lives. God's law is not intended to save you. God did not give his law to his people so that they could obey it enough in order to earn a relationship with him. This is obvious when you think about the story of the Old Testament and the story of redemption as it plays out in the Old Testament. Just think very basically with me. Number one, God establishes a covenant with Abraham. Number two, we're skipping some things, but God saves a people from slavery in Egypt. And then number three, he gives them his law. If you read in the New Testament, in Romans and Galatians, Paul says the order of these th three things is really important. Because first the promise came to Abraham. And then God saved a people to belong to himself. And then he gave them the law. In other words, it's not flipped. It's not as if God came to his people and said, look, I'm going to give you these ten rules, and if you can score a 90 or better, then you get to be my people. That's not how it went. God came to his people and he said, you're my people. Just by declaration, you're mine. And I'm going to save you and bring you out into your own land. And because you now belong to me, here's my law. Don't get the order flipped. God's law is not intended to save us but it's intended to reveal God's character, to reveal our sin, to point us to the Messiah, 
and to show us how life works best. So this is why the longest chapter in the Bible ends with confession and a cry for help. Confession, I've gone astray, and a cry for help, would you please seek your servant? Confession and a cry for help. I read an interesting comment from Martin Luther on this last verse uh, over the last week. And I won't give you the quote. It was a long quote. But here's the point that he made. He said, isn't it interesting and probably significant that when the psalmist talks about going astray, he does not say, I have gone astray like a wolf. But he's gone astray like a lost sheep. Look. There is a world of difference in the way that the world sins with a high hand in defiance to God with no remorse and no repentance and no sorrow and no conviction and no contrition over sin. Between that and the sin of God's people, one goes astray like a wolf, the other goes astray like a lost sheep. And What's the difference? Is, is it that the world sins worse than us? Is it that they sin more than us? No. The difference is God's grace. And the difference is God's people recognizing the role of the shepherd in their lives. So we're just going to end thinking about the shepherd motif or the shepherd theme in the Bible, because that's what the psalmist is ending with. He says he's gone astray like a lost sheep. Who does he expect to come seek his servant? Well, surely it's the shepherd. So just think with me, biblically, for a moment. The story of Israel is a story of shepherds. Who are the three most important leaders in Israel's history? I would argue it's probably Abraham and Moses and David. What did they do for a living? The shepherds. Do you think that's a coincidence? Do you think God ended up with David and said, well, look at here, I ended up with three shepherds. How did that happen? Or do you think maybe God was trying to teach His people something and teach us something? Is it any wonder that for millennia, millennia, the people of God have loved Psalm 23 that starts off, the Lord is my And is it any wonder that when the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, was talking about our need for a Messiah to come, a suffering servant to come, in Isaiah 53, 6, he said, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And we have all gone our own direction. Is it any wonder that the prophets when they spoke about the Messiah to come, described him as a shepherd. i just give you a few verses. You can look these up. Jeremiah lived during the exile. He said to God's people, look, the day is coming where God will send shepherds after God's own heart. What did Ezekiel say to the people living during the exile? Ezekiel said, there is a day coming when a shepherd will come from the line of David. And he will shepherd God's people in faithfulness. What did Micah say in Micah 5? 
Maybe you know Micah 5 because there's a prophecy about a baby who would be born of all places in Bethlehem, of Ephrathah. This is nowhere, nobody, know-nothing town other than the fact that David the shepherd was from this town. And a baby would be born in Bethlehem. And what would that baby grow up to do? Well, who would he grow up to be? Micah says he would be a shepherd. He would shepherd God's people. Look, Psalm 119 ends with this reminder that we have gone astray and we need a shepherd to come save us. Thank God that Psalm 119 is not the last chapter in the Bible. And thank God the shepherd has come. The prophecy of Micah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the one written about in Psalm 23, the one described in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, he's come. And some 2,000 years ago, there was an itinerant, uneducated Jewish rabbi who gathered a group of disciples and he began to tell them the conclusion of a great story. He told his disciples things like the Word had become flesh. He told his disciples things like the Father had sent the Son to be a good shepherd. Look up John 10 later today. John 10. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and I've come to lay down my life for the sheep. No one is going to take it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to take it back up. I've received this authority from the Father. And the Father loves me because I have come to die for the sheep. As you sit here today at the end of one year and the beginning of a new year, you're responsible for how you respond to the Word of God. You're responsible for what you do or don't do with the Word of God in the upcoming year. You're responsible for how you respond to the good news of the gospel of the good shepherd who came and laid down his life for his people. While you're responsible for all of this, you are also completely dependent on God and his grace and his mercy. So as we close, we'll ask God to do what only God can do in our lives. Join me as we pray. Father, we stop this morning and we come to the end of Psalm 119, and like the psalmist, we confess that we have gone astray, and we're thankful that the shepherd, the good shepherd, has come to seek us, to save us while we were lost, that the way that he found us and saved us was by laying down his life for ours. Father, we're thankful for the Bible that tells us this great story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. And we're grateful to find ourselves as as participants in this story. Not because of any good thing that we've done, but because of your grace that's been poured out in our lives. Father, we pray this morning for those who have never confessed their sin and looked to Jesus to save them. And we pray that they would do that this morning. Father, for those of us who... have done that, those of us who are your sheep, your flock, your people. We pray that your word would be powerful in our lives here at the end of a year and the beginning of a new year. Lord, help us to understand. Help us 
to be committed in reading and meditating and memorizing and studying and beholding wondrous things out of your word. Lord, may we be like the psalmist who says, we do not forget your commandments. Father, be honored as we take a moment to sing and to reflect on the good news of the gospel in our lives, and that's the hope of eternity with you. Lord, be honored as we lift our voices and worship together. We do it for your glory, and we do it in Jesus' name.